BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I got to be able to look at myself in the mirror. I got to be able to do the right thing, whether it means my job or not. Today is one of the deadlines for Milwaukee's embattled police chief to show the people who can fire him that they shouldn't. He talked to Fox 6 about the future of the police department, security issues surrounding the DNC, and questions about whether MPD's new weapons have a safety defect. Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire. We are recording this episode on Thursday, July 30th. Brian Polson is on assignment today, but I am here with Fox 6 anchor and reporter Suzanne Spencer. And Suzanne, we're happy you woke up early for us because you had a late night last night. Good morning. Yes, it was a little bit of a late night, but none too early to get up for Open Record. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Suzanne, you sat down with Milwaukee Police Chief Alfonso Morales yesterday, and you found some pretty astonishing new details about questions surrounding MPD's new weapons. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about the big thing people are talking today, and that is the status of the directives that the chief received from the Fire and Police Commission. So can you take us through how those directives came down for people who haven't been following this situation and and what the status is right now. So it was several days ago, last week, in fact, when the Fire and Police Commission issued these 11 directives for Milwaukee Police Chief Alfonso Morales. They basically said, do these or else. So he could be suspended, he could be demoted, or he could be fired if he doesn't comply with these. And I think the big question when these came out, uh, not only what were they, but also does he have to comply and will he comply? So in our interview, we spent quite a bit of time talking with uh, the chief and his attorney about specifically those directives. They called them outrageously short and unfair in terms of the deadlines, how quickly they had to respond to these. These directives and the predicate comments that were included in the directive document were never discussed prior to the day they were visited on Chief Morales. They never had a meeting at which they suggested to each other so the public could be aware of it, of the fact that they were unhappy with the way that uh, Chief Morales was interacting with them. So some of those are actually due today. Uh, A couple of those that are due today deal with a community-oriented policing policy, uh, a citywide face covering for sworn and civilian employees, and basically an ask that the chief has to respond to any FPC request within seven days, and they're asking to amend the standard operating procedure so that he adheres to that deadline. So the chief basically said that he will be complying with these directives. Um, But it's also interesting because some of these directives deal with open investigations. They deal with things that not necessarily everyone 
could or should have their hands on no matter the position. So it's still not entirely clear if the chief will be handing over everything that the Fire and Police Commission is asking for. And I also got the impression from our interview that he wasn't really going to essentially do everything that they were asking uh, just because they asked to do it. There was definitely a sense that his lawyer uh, had a say in this, uh, whether they thought that everything that they asked were asking for was necessarily appropriate. Did he name any specific directive pointing to that saying, this isn't doable, or I don't think this is something that I should be doing? He didn't say specifically a directive where that was the case, other than that they had asked for an extension on some of the directives and that it was not granted. So it's unclear if any of those he may just simply not do or not get to them in a timely manner or if he'll do all of them. But, for example, they they asked for several of the uh, open investigative files into, like, Vaughn Mays, which is still an open investigation. And Vaughn Mays is a a pretty well-known community activist who was arrested, and there were a lot of people who were upset when he was arrested. Yeah, and then they also asked for the case file with Sterling Brown, so something that had happened quite some time ago. But it's clear that they are making a point here, that they want a lot of these files that generated some controversy, especially uh, given the climate that, you know, we're in right now. And um, they they want to be able to look at that themselves and decide if they approve of the way MPD handled it. There's always going to be uh, groups. There's always going to be uh, individuals uh, or whether uh, civilian or intergovernmental officials that aren't going to agree with uh, my position as the chief. Um, but the, the one fair shake that I ask is, we're a city of 600,000. And let's look at a city of 600,000. Let's not look at a small group or particular individuals that express displeasure towards the organization. And that's true community. The police chief has been doing a kind of a press tour, if you will, over the last few days, granting interviews, talking about these directives. Do you get the sense that this is the last push to save his job and get public opinion on his side? It could be. Um, I think an important part of the directives is that the directives can actually be overruled by the mayor, and we haven't really heard anything from the mayor on this. So, um, you know, a lot of times this is a game of politics, but it is interesting to me that we haven't heard anything from the mayor. And granted, I didn't reach out to the mayor yesterday in light of our story, but we have in the past to see exactly how he would be handling this, if he would intervene in some way. And to my knowledge, it doesn't appear that he is. Um, So, It's definitely a a trying time, I think, for Milwaukee's police chief because he's trying to do the right thing and he's made it clear he wants to keep his job. He doesn't want to be doing something else, at least at this juncture. And we know just from, um, you know, talking with a lot of the police officers, he has a lot of support on that force, uh, especially because he's, you know, homegrown. He's from Milwaukee. A lot of those police officers have risen through the ranks with him. Um, But given the community calls uh, for his firing and for real change, uh, it will be really interesting to see if, if the Fire and Police Commission even listens to what he has to say, or if he turns over all those documents, what their decision may be. I do want to talk about an issue that's near and dear to my heart, and that's open records. So one of the issues that Fire and Police Commission brought up with the chief was 
transparency. And some of those directives actually revolve around open records. MPD is pretty notorious for taking a long time to fill records requests or blocking access in some cases to information. And you got to ask the chief about that. So what came out of that conversation? Yeah, so specifically, and and I'm with you, Amanda, like typically when we get we file a records request, it takes months. And for something as simple as uh, we asked if how many police officers had COVID-19 on the department, and it was about two to three months for us to get that information back. So there was a lag time, and those details are timely when we request them. And so when we get that information so many months later, it can be a challenge. Yeah, it's useless at that point. Right. And so uh, when I asked the chief about it, he basically said that it was a good question uh, because of the defund the police movement. Because our primary responsibility is to respond to that call for help. And I have to look at where I'm going to pull from to address whatever our primary responsibility is. Uh, understand that, uh, no, we don't want to ho- hold back information, but I also have to look at where my staffing is. And he didn't directly say, I'm going to cut open records positions, um, but he, he said that that's something he would consider. And I think some would make the argument that that's not something you should cut and that you should staff people in those positions. Um, but it is an interesting sort of discussion about how he is trying to allocate resources knowing he very well could lose 10 percent of his budget, as some have discussed kind of in the past. Well, and I think his answer reveals how he views the open records law, right? So the law itself says that granting records requests is considered one of your routine duties, right? So it's not extra. This is just it's transparency is part of your job. And the way he spoke about it left me with the impression, not necessarily that he saw it as extra, but that he definitely saw it as a a lower tier than some of the other functions of the department. I don't know that that's an answer based on some of the FPC and community concerns that we've heard that would necessarily satisfy people because one of the complaints about the department has been surrounding issues of transparency. Yeah. And and when we were discussing this, he also brought up the fact that they are losing a lot of people uh, in terms of retirements and resignations and kind of pointed to fewer people to fill the positions. Um, So I think to your point, it's it's kind of shows, I guess, uh, where maybe his priorities lie in terms of staffing and where to fill those positions. Maybe he's prioritizing more of the supervisory management roles versus something like open records, which could only delay the process even further. Now, all of this kind of ties into a a big event coming up in Milwaukee, although obviously not as big as we originally thought it was going to be, and that's the DNC. So that's slated to start in a few weeks. It's much more scaled down now that so many components of it are going to be virtual, but there still is a need for security surrounding the DNC. And over the last several days, we've seen several departments that were supposed to help with that security pull out. So what's going on with that and what does the chief think about it? Jason Calvi had talked with a couple different uh, departments a couple days ago, uh, basically saying that they have concerns about the use of tear gas. So if tear gas is no longer allowed to be used in Milwaukee, we've seen Which several- is what the FPC wants. 
Right. So the FPC is asking for um, basically to discontinue the use of tear gas and to have a discussion about uh, any use of that type of less lethal means. It's not a good idea to get rid of it altogether. Uh, all of the uh, the resources that we have to disperse a crowd peacefully, or I should say, uh, without uh, with minimal damages. Uh, the reason why is we've come this far bringing these items to ensure uh, the safety of the community and now we take them away. It's just going to open up uh, the opportunity for people to get hurt. He wants to be able to have less lethal means like tear gas, uh, like CS gas, OC spray is what he referred to. Uh, less lethal means like rubber projectiles, those types of things, so that if something turns violent, there are other ways to handle it. So the FPC is making that ask of him. And it it obviously appears from his discussion with me, he doesn't support removing that altogether. Um, But those are definitely the calls that we're hearing from the public. They don't want that. Uh, And a lot of people say the police are using that when they don't have to. And the chief makes the argument that they only use it when they have to, when a situation turns into an unlawful assembly. So when a, a protest turns violent, whether that's a shot fired or something that happens that causes it to take that turn toward violence is when they would use that means. So that's kind of a sticking point right now with the FPC. I mean, they, they've they received a lot of complaints about this from the public, and they're making this ask of the chief. And especially with the DNC, we've seen more than 100 departments now pull out. So, you know, my question to the chief was, what what do you do? How do you ensure a safe environment when you have far fewer departments coming in? And he basically had said, we might reach the point where we have to uh, tap into the National Guard, which was the first that I had heard about this. And obviously with the DNC, they work very closely with the Secret Service. So a lot of these decisions likely aren't coming from Milwaukee police. They're coming from higher up. And uh, so he had said as a result of the more than 100 departments pulling out, yes, that could mean we go to the National Guard for help, but it could also be because we have intelligence that we need the National Guard. So it's not just as a result of the 100 plus departments pulling out. Um, It could be another reason, if that makes sense. And so he's basically in a position where he has to choose do I do I do what the people who essentially can fire me want me to do, which is the fire and police commission's desire to stop using tear gas at the risk of these other departments uh, saying, hey, that we think in our perspective that that's going to be less safe for us. So we're not going to help you with security. Um, you know, do, does he do that or does he risk getting fired and not being around to oversee DNC security to begin with. I mean, if he loses his job, do we think there's any chance that would happen before the DNC? Hard to say. Um, So we know some of the directives are due today. Another handful of them are due on August 4th. And obviously, that's right before the DNC. Uh, So it's hard to say the exact process that would have to happen. Um, Obviously, with this sort of with how many directives there are and, and whether they decide he's in compliance, you would imagine that there have to be public meetings in order for people to weigh in on. Um, but the exact process is a bit unclear at this point, and that's kind of been a theme, at least with with 
my covering of the FPC because they're doing a lot of things that haven't been done before. When they took over the Officer Mattioli investigation, that was the first investigation they'd ever taken over from MPD Internal Affairs, which that investigation was um, the officer who was accused in the death of Joel Acevedo. So it's been I think a learning process for them and also for us covering the FPC, uh, just learning how exactly, okay, if he is going to face disciplinary action or if they're not happy with him, how does that look? I want to get to the most interesting part of your interview with the chief, which is surrounding the Milwaukee Police Department's new weapons and questions about their safety. This is an issue you've been looking into for a couple weeks, and it actually is how you ended up sitting down with the chief in the first place. So take us back to when you started digging into this issue. What was going on? On July 14th at 6th and Garfield, there was a shooting and it was they were after a, a wanted suspect at the time. And there was what police call uh, there was some sort of scuffle or a brief struggle while they were trying to take this suspect into custody. And according to the press release at the time, it basically had said that the gun was holstered at the time of discharge, meaning that bullet went off when it was in its holster. Uh, unprompted. So that just raised a red flag to me. How does that happen? And I found that the answer was much more difficult to find than I thought it was. So I had started filing records requests for this to ask that question, why did that gun go off? And because we know that sometimes records requests can take a while, we ended up sitting down with the chief and I asked him that question. We don't know why. Uh, there's a number of different variables uh, that we have to look at uh, in that incident. And it's very difficult. It's under, uh, still under investigation. What I mean by investigation, uh, our firearms experts, as well as the, uh, the company that we uh, utilize for our firearms, in this case being SIGSAR, the representatives, there's uh, communication going on between them, uh, between us, between the handcuffing, the, the tactics that we use and uh, placing that individual into the squad car, there's a number of different variables that, uh, that take place. Uh, an accidental or, uh, discharge is all, it's not just filed away. So Milwaukee police officers carry a gun called the Sig Sauer P320. And Milwaukee police has about eight, 1,800 sworn officers that carry that gun. If you Google Sig Sauer P320, you can instantly find that this is a gun that has had problems in the past. So the issue, uh, according to someone that I spoke with who actually field tested the prior model of this gun, if you hold it at a very specific angle and you drop it, it can discharge without pulling the trigger. And the way this works, and um, gun advocate, you know, gun experts would be more. Uh, fine-tuned with the way they would describe this, but the safety is not something you pull. It's built into the trigger. So if this gun hit the ground in a certain way or was bumped in a certain way on the butt of the gun, it could discharge without the trigger being pulled, essentially. So my question to the chief was, you know, Sig Sauer actually did a, a voluntary recall of this gun when they realized this problem was happening in 2017. And I asked the chief, do you think that this problem could be to blame? Could this possibly be something that wasn't fixed on behalf of the manufacturer? And the chief gave me a, you know, an explanation of we definitely field test these guns. We have firearms experts within the police department. They're our range master 
and the staff that works for our range master. They field test the firearm and they do some extensive tests from throwing the gun on, on the ground. A, a lot of things that will happen during the day, day activities of a police officer if they fall on the ground, the holster that is uh, selected. There's a number of different field tests that they use. They, in a sense, beat up the gun to see what uh, uh, wear and tear that firearm can take, uh, looking for some type of discharge. That was done with this pistol. So um, basically it was, you know, this, this gun, the Sig Sauer P320 had issues leading up to 2017. The manufacturer issued this voluntary recall, said it was fixed. Uh, but we actually found uh, a CNN investigation that discovered that some uh, departments across the country have still had issues with this gun since the fix, meaning it does discharge uh, without the trigger being pulled. So we had reached out to Sig Sauer for a response. Uh, we have not heard back yet from them. Um, but this this guy named Jeremy, who actually field tested uh, a lot of these guns kind of prior to the fix, we spoke with him yesterday and he said it's a very specific 30-degree angle right on the corner of the side of the pistol. There are a lot of things that had to happen perfectly in order for this gun to discharge without the trigger being pulled. So he said it's unlikely that something like a brief struggle with MPD uh, could be the reason that this gun went off. But who's to say that that's necessarily the case? So um, – I think for us, it was just gaining the perspective of someone who knows it. So in, in Jeremy's case, he's field tested that gun. But then also giving the chief a fair chance to say, you know, did you guys vet this gun properly? Did you do your research? And to the chief's credit, he said, yes. I mean, we've we field tested this gun, uh, but there's always a chance that, that something could happen that is unforeseen. So at this point, they're still taking a look at the gun, which really could tell us a lot about... Uh, what happened. This is often done in, in investigations like this where the ballistics team or the state uh, the state laboratory will take a look at that gun to see what happened. And I think that could give us insight as to if this gun really discharged without pulling the trigger. Because if there is a safety defect, it, it affects the safety of the community, but the safety of police. So I would imagine they'd be very invested in making sure that the weapons they have aren't going to go off when they're not supposed to. And I think that's the chief's point. He would never want to put his officers in any more danger, uh, perhaps, than they already are. So he's going to do everything he can to make sure that this investigation gets done quickly, that if the actual gun did go off without the trigger being pulled, that it doesn't happen again. Well, and the interesting thing with this, just from a journalistic perspective. I mean, this is a gun that has lawsuits against it. I would imagine it's not the only weapon that has had any kind of issue or recall or lawsuit. So I'm wondering how departments, how much weight departments give to some of those issues. It, it sounds like the issue with the Sig Sauer, at least leading up to 2017, was pretty heavily publicized. And I understand they did a recall and said they fixed the issue, but there was also information readily available out there after that saying, hey, there are still some issues going on. So if you're going to purchase this weapon in 2019, I, I'm wondering how much weight a, a police department would give that and how many other police departments use this weapon. 
And that's a good point. I mean, there are a lot of law enforcement agencies and uh, the military uses this weapon, specific branches of the military, which I think in some ways obviously gives it more credit. Uh, And and they, they obviously chose that because of its reputation. Um, But I think that the reason we found out about this is because, you know, officers are worried. Could they put this gun in their safe? Could they put it on their desk? And the way they strike it, could it could it go off without them pressing the trigger? And I think that that is reason for concern for officers, for the public, for families. And so our story really just skimmed the surface of trying to ask the department, are you doing something about this? What happens if there is an issue uh, at the manufacturing level? Because 1,800 of these guns are still on the streets of Milwaukee uh, with the police department. And the chief said, if we realize that this gun there's a problem with it. Uh, we'll either get a sort of upgrade. He compared it to a, a kind of a car recall. If there's something wrong with your car, then you take it in and you get it updated. So he said well, we'd either do that with the same manufacturer or get a new gun if we have to. But obviously all of that comes with time and, and cost. And really the big question mark could be uh, alleviated once we hear back from uh, the ballistics team on whether this gun really did go off without someone pulling the trigger. Suzanne, we've seen quite a few different emotions from the chief over the last several months. When protests against police started, he initially had a more defiant tone. It was later more of a quiet resolve. What was his demeanor during this interview and and what impression did you walk away with? I think anytime he has four to six interviews in a couple days, the the chief is perhaps done with asking questions at a certain point. But he he was uh, positive in tone. The chief never is shy to admit that uh, he's not you know, he's always willing to answer a question and he's always going to incorporate his faith uh, and also the support for his officers in many of his answers, which was the same case yesterday. Uh, but yesterday, he also almost teared up at one point. I gotta be able to look at myself in the mirror. I gotta be able to do the right thing, whether it means my job or not. Kind of left this sort of ominous tone, in my opinion, of, you know, I have to make sure that I'm doing the right thing for me, uh, whatever that is, whatever that looks like. And he said this, and I said, well, what does that mean, chief? And he kind of looked at me and paused for a second and gave this answer that he said, that's for the public to find out later. And At that point, I wasn't going to press him because I think that he was speaking that way on purpose. And I found that often with the chief, that if he if he's speaking in a way that's not necessarily direct, that's about as far as you can go with him. So I think that he uh, maintains a hopeful tone. I think that he has never been shy to show his emotions, especially when it comes to defending his officers. Um, But I think that there is still some uncertainty for his future, and I don't think that he uh, is afraid to admit that. And so I think as we continue to see how this plays out with the FPC, uh, we'll have to kind of keep a close eye as to his demeanor and his emotional kind of well-being because it is definitely interesting to see given his you know length and time served on the force uh, versus someone like ed flynn who kind of came in and left i mean chief morales has been there a long time and any sort of action i think taken against him at the end of the day will be tough for him to swallow 
Suzanne, we've spent a lot of time talking about the Chiefs' future. I want to take a few minutes to talk about your future, because <laughs> at the beginning of this episode, we said that 8.30 was early for you because you've been working a night shift for the last few years, and all of that is going to change. So what, what happens next week? Well, we're, I'm moving to the morning shift. As I think they call it the dark side. I'll be waking <laughs> up much earlier. So I, when I'll it's be literally starting. dark. When it's literally dark, yes, the coffee machine will be going off at uh, 2.30 a.m. next week versus my normal probably 8 o'clock. So I'll be moving to the anchor desk next week uh, with the talented wake-up team. And I'm really excited for the new challenge and to work with a team who uh, is so committed to the craft and also just being able to laugh and have fun and uh, show their personalities. So it's always been, you know, a goal of mine to um, be at the anchor desk someday and sometimes uh, you know, things surprise you. And I think that um, this was one of those for me. I'm really excited and uh, excited for a new challenge in my career and my professional uh, journey. So I'll still be doing some of the special report type uh, investigations. And I hope to continue doing some of the work like we're talking about today. And uh, our cold case stories that we do once a month are also really important to me. So I will still be uh, out at at it in the field as much as I can, uh, while also uh, staying a little bit inside more often too. Well, and this was, I'd imagine this was uh, tough for our managers because you're an excellent reporter and you don't want to lose someone who's bringing their A game to reporting every day, but you also don't want that to hold back someone who is talented in other ways and and wants to move to these other things. So was that a struggle for you at all to say, hey, do I want to give up being in the in the field most days? Or for you, was that a pretty clear, no, I, I want to be at the anchor desk and there are still ways for me to be in the field while I do that? You can ask my photographer and my manager, Kelly, this week. I was carefully trying to select all the stories I was going to do because it's my last week in the field and I wanted to make sure that I had some good stories to to sign off on, so to speak, as a reporter. Um, I think anytime I have had a new opportunity in, in my career, in my profession, it's hey, I'm willing to do this. Sign me up. Let's try this. And a lot of times it just takes some people to believe in you. So did I know I wanted to anchor here or, you know, move into that role? I don't think so, because I don't think anyone knew that knew the sequence of events that would happen here. But um, I'm excited for it. And I think that um, no matter what, I'll still continue to, uh, you know, embrace those reporting roots uh, while just taking on a new challenge at the anchor desk. So I did that once before in South Bend, Indiana, where I started as a reporter and moved into an anchor role and definitely hard to go from being in the field all the time to the anchor desk. But I'm excited for the challenge and looking forward to it. Today's Thursday. Tomorrow, Friday morning, you're going to be on Wake Up, right, to kind of say goodbye to Nicole Coughlin, who is leaving us in the, the, the passing of the torch. The passing of the torch, although I'm, I'm told that we're not allowed to touch the same torch because of COVID and all of, the, <laughs> all of the things there. So, yeah, it'll be great to see Nicole. And we don't often cross paths just by virtue of schedules. So um, it's really great for her that she's able to start this new journey with her family and, and kind of a new chapter of her own life. So she's given so much to the station over the years. And I think we're all so thankful for that and, and um, you know, her time and also her example for all of us journalists. So. 
So it'll be good to kind of get my bearings with the team tomorrow and and then Monday start the new shift. So we'll have to tune in and see how I do. If I don't oversleep the alarm, then I think it'll be good for all of us. (laughs) What time is your alarm going to be set for? 2.30. Oh, I remember those days. Yeah, I bet you do. And I'll be in by about 3.45 and the show starts at 4.30 and we're still kind of working out the kinks on when exactly I'll be starting. So... All right. Well, thank you, Suzanne. Good luck. And and thank you for being on Open Record today. We hope to have you on, uh, despite your new schedule, many more times. And we are going to continue bringing you these twice-weekly episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic and so much more, including police reforms and police accountability in the Milwaukee area. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email at WITI underscore the investigators at Fox.com. Again, that's WITI underscore the investigators at Fox.com. Thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and we will be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday. Tuesday.